Hello, event experts and enthusiasts, and everyone in between. I'm Hayley Haggerty, and you're listening to In Case of an Event. In this episode of In Case of an Event, David Adler, founder and chairman of BizBash, reminds us how to bring back the creative experience of live events. Has the event industry been too focused on figuring out the hybrid approach that we've neglected how the pandemic has changed the needs and wants of a live event? Let's get to grips with live event design again and bringing those hair-raising goosebumps back. David Adler, welcome to In Case of an Event. Fantastic to be here. Yeah, I mean... You're sort of a competitor in the podcast space with your your mm. Gather Geeks podcast. I don't know if anyone's heard of you before. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Just a, you know, just like a like a person out in the wilderness trying to like make events better. Yeah, aren't we one one event at a time? One event at a time. Yes. Yeah. So you you launched BizBash in two thousand. Is that right? I launched BizBash in two thousand. I've always been sort of event tangential. I was head of corporate communications for two major companies. One of them was called Prime Media. You have somebody working at your company that sort of worked there. I did work there for many years, Charlie sure McCurdy, did, yeah. who was a friend of mine. And I loved when he finally started into the event world and said, I, I'm so happy I have no print on paper. I just have events. And he was like giddy almost over that. <laughs> and now we've come full circle again. Now you have things like editors and you know media and all the things that we thought we would uh, be able to jettison. But now it turns out that community and serving people more than once a year is more important than ever. Yeah, who knew we would do a full cycle? Because yeah, it was events first for a long time. Yeah, and I think we're gonna, you know, I think it's more community first now. Yeah. And however you serve the community is the thing. Because I always consider my, you know, the way I look at the world in events, especially that I, as a show manager, in a sense, ultimately, I'm the mayor of my niche. And so I've got to do everything in the community from inspiring the community to cleaning up the trash. And it comes down to this full circle mayoral job more than anything else, Yeah, in my opinion. Then you got to get reelected. <laughs> you have to get reelected, yeah. <laughs> they vote with their, their attendance. And it's a habit business. It's not like you open up the sign and everybody shows up. You're building your community. And the habit business is much harder than people realize. That's why these shows that go on and on, that have been on for years, have a value just in the habit alone. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes hundreds of years to build a habit. It's fantastic, though. The event business has grown up in the last 22 years that I've been doing this. For people who don't know BizBash, can you give us a little insight into its origin and what it is? Well, the reason I started BizBash, because I was planning hundreds and hundreds of events at Prime Media. We had New York Magazine and Seventeen and Soap Opera Digest and Hog Farmer and uh, every possible type of magazine. We were doing events as one of the primary ways to get people to get involved in those publications. And then we started in the New York events, spending a lot more money on seeing what it was all about. And I ended up having to like call my friends and say, hey, who did you use to do this and that? I started out in New York as kind of a database to find out who did what in an event. So we would go to an event and we would find out who the caterer was and who the, the venue was and who was the entertainment. And we started putting it in a database. And then we made the database contextual. 
so that you could look at a story on an event, go to the people that did the event, and then go from the directory of the event to see who did the, what events. And it was a circular thing. Mm. And it we got a wrap for many years that we covered parties. But in a sense, we don't. We're now thinking of ourselves as experience creators. So we've created this, this sort of way for people to peek over the fence to see what other people are doing. So they're inspired and then they want to sort of build on that. You know, we were, we've started in a trade show world after we started. In fact, we started out as an online property. Then we did our own trade show in New York and it was a huge success. And so we got into the trade show business. Then we got into the magazine business after the trade show business, because I helped bring New York back after 9-11 and got involved in some leadership roles there and decided that this media company, this magazine, would inspire people to want to come to New York to do their events. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, the uh, the Dallas Auto Club Auto Association decided that it was a great incentive trip to go take people to New York. Wow. And we just saw how it was used in so many different ways. Everyone thinks of it as segmented, but we're all experienced creators. And what I try to do now is to showcase how to be a great experience creator. And also, I also believe when I've learned over the last 20 years that event organizers are not event organizers. They have to be, to be good at their jobs, collaboration artists. Because if people do not connect with each other, whether exhibitors and people attendees or fellow attendees or whatever, you've got nothing. You've got a boring, beautiful experience. <laughs> and so I have become obsessed with the idea of how do you become a collaboration artist? For example, one of the things that I do now when I give a speech is I get up and I say, okay, it's not about me, it's about you. So I give everybody five or 10 minutes to talk to people in the audience. And all of a sudden, you're creating thousands of conversations that convert into everything from love affairs to business deals. And and I now judge an event not by how many people attend, but how many conversations I'm curating. It's a whole nother way of thinking about it. And there's also, I've also gotten very involved in thinking about event design as social physics, mm. how ideas flow. And so every move that you make is not just nice. It has to be connected to almost the neuroscience and the, the regular science of it and the workflow and the walking flow. You know how first time, you know, you go down the first aisle, there's all these studies now about how attendance and how people walk around shows, you know, all these different types of technologies that can, can heat map it and show what's going on. And it's more important than ever. I'm fascinated about how Disney constructed its main streets and the way the complete layout is. They thought about everything. Mm -hmm. They thought about which shops go on the right versus the left, how, how far away the garbage bins are from each other. Event design and the flow and the behavior when you're there is just as important as an event strategy, in my opinion. Yeah, well, the attendee journey is yeah. part of you know all of that. In a sense, is there's a lot of work being done on on analyzing the attendee journey. Now it's even more important than ever because I think because we've been sort of in the desert for 15, 16 months, people are looking at that even more and they're more appreciative of that. Yeah, but I wonder if event organizers are not putting enough effort into we come back to an event and people's expectations are more than they were before and they should be. And they're putting so much effort into the hybrid strategy and what that looks like that they are actually forgetting about the fundamentals and more of the live event experience. 
There's a, a great book by Priya Parker, which is about creating purposeful events. You almost have to understand the motivation of why someone wants to come to an event first. I think that after this sort of initial period of, oh my God, I'm like seeing another person and I can give someone a hug. Uh, we're going to go back to, do I really want to travel to Vegas and sit in the middle seat because I forgot to you know book early enough? Or uh, people are going to be thinking about it much more carefully. And so I think that the physics of everything, the social physics of everything from getting on a plane to packing to everything is now in question because a lot of the stumbling blocks on events are not necessarily the event, but it's the idea that you want to do the hassle of getting there. I don't know if you've traveled recently, but because the plane, the airports are so understaffed, the lines are incredible. And you say, what the hell am I doing? I traveled last week to Vegas for Worlds of Concrete. And um, yeah, I, fe I felt very exhausted. I didn't really want to network mm -hmm. with people and make small talk, honestly. Mm -hmm. But also what I did appreciate is the digital room keys. Oh, really? That was a game changer. It's on your phone. You don't have to, you don't have to remember your room number for a start. Oh, that's, <laughs> so that's, a, that's a good that's one. Good. Do you know what the biggest sin I think is? lines mm. we realize that you have digital keys and things like that why do you need to wait online for anything mm -mm. and in many cases our organizers are thinking of budget when you know they have a bar situation they just add two or three more bartenders and it maybe eliminates the line or or one of the things i do uh, in terms of my design whenever there is congestion i program against it i will put entertainment on the line mm -hmm. i will make it so that there's a you know registration where all of a sudden you know they all break out in song theatrical uh, registration or we got you know new mousetraps that that enhance the actual experience as if it's hidden in the experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that you're going to see a lot of human things that are going to, that are going to happen at, especially the, you know, the big events. I mean, you guys do a lot of the, the largest events on the planet. And I think you're learning from each one what to do. You know, my, my fear is that it becomes a cookie cutter thing. The, the individual events lose their character because your, your budgets in the big companies are just, like universal on we're not going to do that. And we had this big discussion the other day about World of Concrete. And the number one thing that people were talking about at our Society of Independent Organizers was no carpet in the aisles. We don't need carpet in the aisles. Hooray. We save X dollars in our budgets because we don't. So it was interesting that people don't really care about it. I, mean, I did go to a few years ago. I was the oldest living human being at the Vogue Teen Summit. Oh. And and it was interesting seeing the aesthetic of this next generation. They don't care as much about the decor the way we mm -hmm. used to care about it, that it's all tidy and buttoned up. They had a stage which they bought a carpet from like Kmart and put it on the stage. And it was it was it was pretty, but it wasn't like over the top. They were much more concerned about the one item that they can Instagram or the one installation that that made some impact. But they really didn't care about the entire thing. So you don't need like you know, do a big event like a, a real like a gal or something. You do need like things on the table. But for the most part, they want that one item, that one thing. And I think you're seeing that in engagement, too. Yeah. They can do one or two things. You know, it's inst it's not Instagram necessarily, but it's are those moments that make you say, oh, my God, look, this is fun. Yeah, a memorable something. Because I something. think you could spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on flowers. <laughs> no one's going to remember that there were flowers yeah. on every table. Yep. Um, and going back to the carpet as well, just FYI, Worlds of Concrete, they must be the event that can get away with no carpet because they're – Oh, yeah. Concrete. They love concrete. Okay. So that's one thing. <laughs> we ended up um, at our show stopping carpet, too. I mean, and people didn't care. Some people will care. Most people won't. 
It really wasn't down to cost savings, honestly, David, For in my opinion, for me and my event. We got rid of carpet. I was like, yes, we're going to save a ton of money. How much are we saving? And when I was told, I was disappointed. So it is very much down to sustainability. Yes, sustainability, absolutely. There's maybe an in-between where it's not one or the other. I think there'll be some other ideas coming out that will still be nice to look at maybe help wayfinding. I love a floor decal, personally. You're a floor decal gal. I'm a floor decal <laughs> gal. I think if you know me, um, I'm always <laughs> underwhelmed. My go-to is if you think the size of floor decal is you've got a size, you double it, and then that will be the size that you really want because they're always really small and you're like very underwhelmed. That's so funny. Yeah. You know, I think that these little moments, those little things done well make a big difference. But I'm trying to figure out a way to translate. You know how you go on Instagram and you immediately want to buy that new thing that they've created, the way they present it? How do you make booths feel like that so that you're walking down the aisles and there's like it's a thirst trap, you know how they talk about it, for that product? And I think that a lot of the stuff that we need to do is educating the exhibitors on making their booths better. Now, some of them are fantastic, but others, when you go to some of the pedestrian shows, nothing stands out because they just have a bunch of you know rack stuff and they don't think about it as much. But I do think that that's also another thing that's going to happen. The experience, enhancing the experience and using the shows as the as sort of the anchor for them. I mean, we, we're competing in many cases with things like Dreamforce mm. and C2 Montreal and things like that. And they're doing it in a different way mm-hmm. But their motives are different. But at the same time, they're profitable. Yeah. Uh, Those shows, you think it's just a corporate event, but they sell. That's our biggest competitor in many cases. Right, right. And I think booths and trade shows are not that they're going to be up for question, but their ROI is definitely going to be questioned more than ever. And even looking at a virtual event, I know virtual attendance isn't as valuable. Maybe they're not looking directly for sourcing if you're at a live event these days you're going to you're looking for something you're actually there I think as of right now but you get more leads and you get more insight and you know who's touched what now we're going into this new world where you don't get any insight as of right well you know there's technology out there I'd like to see more of it where we really do know exactly what the attendees are doing when they're at the event every second that would give us insight but How do you think this can actually help exhibitors improve their own event within our event, aka their booth? Um, I think, you know, there's this new, is it active? There's this new technology where you can see the face of the person as they go by and you can see the delight in their face. And I think that kind of technology is going to be more important. Like, for example, if you go to a general session now, the cameras will be pointed on the audience. So the the actual speaker is going to see, or they already do this now, if what they're saying is being accepted by the audience based on facial uh, recognition and fa- facial sort of all of the, the data points from your face and how you smile or frown or don't say anything or don't react to anything. And you're going to see more and more of that type of stuff, I think. But, but it still has to be an experience, whatever it is, it has to be an experience that you learn from, an experience that you're going to get business from, an experience that you're going to increase your life's happiness from. So this is design. I mean, we have to, personally, I think that the 10 by 10 booth, you may, it's like PowerPoint. So I think people are going to have, the, the pipe and drape is going to be sort of like, people are still doing pipe and drape. Oh, I hate pipe and drape. Hate it with a passion. But if you have a large event, to actually get rid of pipe and drape, 
and remove it and replace it with something better, it's more expensive. I have researched this many times and ultimately I've had to say no because if you have over 2,000 booths and half of them are 10 by 10s, you know, it adds up. So it can be really difficult to balance the budget with your wanting to do so much more with the experience. And actually, pipe and drape always falls off. There's always something else I want to spend the money on that I think will have a better impact. I could talk about pipe and drape or the lack of pipe and drape or the hate of <laughs> pipe and drape for, for, for a long time. It comes down to when you work for a bigger corporation, I guess, you know, budgets maybe more important than, than if you're working for a private company. So, so I, but I think though that the good news about big companies is that you really have to be an entrepreneur. You have to try things that aren't that expensive and make them scale and work. Yeah. You know, the good news is you don't have to worry about the, the blocking and tackling when you do that because, you know, that's going to be all done. But Oh, yeah. I'm incredibly grateful to have the backing of a large event company, the largest event company. Yes. Right now when I'm running my events for sure. Tell me about your event in Vegas that you hosted in May. So that was in Vegas before the restrictions were lifted. You had a large event that was hybrid. So when you're talking about experiences, what did you learn from that? Because I, I guess it was a challenging time to be hosting a live event, right? It was very challenging because it was four or five days before you can put an activation anywhere. <sighs> so it didn't look as great as our normal. Our normal events are like, you just don't know where to look first, you know, because it's so packed with stuff that you say, oh, my God, I have to use this or I have to use that for my event next time. We had Court Furniture create an incredible place for people to sit, but it looked so interesting that you were actually looking at the audience as, as part of the experience, sitting in those great couches and hanging out. And then I turned all of the, the talks that I did into podcasts. So I was able to create a, a content farm out of the people that came. So they got a lot more uh, activity. And then we also had a huge virtual audience. We had like 15, for us, 1,500 people in a virtual audience is pretty big. And we had a host that did nothing but deal with the virtual audience and then turned it over to me, who was doing a lot of the stuff on the stage. And we did a lot of interviews. And we had a, a formula. People take in information in different ways. I like this podcasting format for, for main stages now mm -hmm. because people don't necessarily like a presentation. We also had a woman that did a dramatic presentation, okay. which I thought was really good on the art of being the number two in an organization. Ooh. And it was like TED Talk type of thing that was that was so engaging. You know, it's the kind of thing where I think that also what could happen, and I've had this happen three or four times, scripted presentations on the stage that are dramatic readings are really a whole nother way to go. I think you're going to see more theatricality to even, even the most mundane thing because it will stand out like yeah. crazy. And it's not that hard to do. You hire a, you write a great script. It's not, it's not easy to do, but it's not expensive to do mm. because it's, it's just originality more than anything else. And I think you're going to see a lot more new ways of presenting, a lot more sharing, share-a-thons, mm -hmm. like our, the Society of Independent Show Organizers, we do our summer festival. But it, we're, it's turning out that the best speakers of that event are the people on the front lines because that's why it has to be a share-a-thon. So, we want to know what happened last week in Vegas. It's going to help me do my job a lot better than bringing in some motivational speaker that has no interest in, in the event world. So we're going to make it a lot of roundtables, 
a lot of town hall meetings. We think there's a lot of aspiration among the people in the trade show world who are going to be the next level leaders. So they need to know about M&A and things like that. And so you know, we're all being trained for that CEO job in some form or another, because we're all mayors of our niche in some way. I think it's going to be interesting. And I think now more than ever, the idea of sharing your thoughts with your colleagues are are important because we're all, as I've heard from most of the people in the industry, we're all kind of flying the plane and rebuilding it at the same time. And so we have to make decisions on things that there's no history about. There's no history about, you know, the bringing hybrid and virtual and live. I mean, that's a whole new area that we don't even know what that means yet. No, we don't. And I'm sure it'll mean different things to different industries and different event styles. And I think that's going to be, like you said before, there's not going to be a cookie cutter approach when you were talking about your Bish Bash event in Vegas, to making sure that you have that exclusive connection with the virtual audience. How important do you think that is? I think that is absolutely critical because what happens now, if you've ever, do you ever call in to a meeting and everyone else is in the meeting and you're calling in and you get ignored. So you need somebody that's just going to focus on the people that are online. And there are more people online than we're in the room. So it made a lot more sense. So we had a very, very, uh, Kate Pate is the name of the woman. She was our host and she not only monitored the content, but did programming like in the morning, we had morning yoga online. We made the breaks into something different than the breaks for the people in the rooms. And so we just constantly were storytelling the entire day and adding programming that was not part of the show. And I think that was good. But people have to be, you know, really, it's a whole extra cost to do that correctly. Yeah. Uh, now, some people are saying, how do you break the fifth wall, uh, which is combining online audience and the in-person audience? And and GES, the people from GES in my podcast, you, let to, you know, isn't it great? These podcasts, you learn so much. You do. I don't care if anyone else listening is learning. I'm definitely taking notes. (laughs) It's like the secret weapon of like the whole thing. So they talk about, they they came up with this idea that, so you walk into a hall and, you know, one of the biggest problems with virtual is the actual events uh, don't work that well. The actual trade shows floors are not that active. But what they're doing now is saying, okay, you walk into a room, there's be a whole bunch of iPads on the wall and Mm. you take a buddy with you, a virtual buddy, and you travel with a virtual buddy. I mean, it's a little bit wonky, but there's something there to that in terms of our thinking. And so I find that sort of stimulated. It's, it's a great how so one thought can, can open up your mind to do a lot of other things. Yeah, I think that's it. Something that feels to me like that would feel kind of awkward, honestly, yeah. if I were to be forced to take an iPad. But then it might say, but this actually worked to some degree. Yeah, I like matchmaking generally. In life, I like to match make people that I think <laughs> will will make a good couple, or definitely in my professional like networking, matchmaking is probably my my specialty, and I, I love it a lot. That's where I'm. I really have to take some time and be like, how does this work in the virtual and the live event? Are the platforms there yet? I don't know. Well, here's the thing: I, I interviewed this guy, uh, Tim Groot, I think from Grip. One of the, it's the, they have done a lot of networking things. He's a really smart oh, yeah. guy. And so I've met him a few years ago at SISO. It's a great platform. Great platform. But he says that, he says, I've used this now all the time. I stolen it from him completely. That uh, events are trust accelerator. Live events are the trust accelerator. So once you meet someone live once, 
you can do all the virtual things in the world with them after that. Yeah. And the opposite makes sense too. You're probably not going to meet someone virtually once for 15 minutes and head it off and want to connect with them in a live event. You're going to probably have to build a relationship. And then when you get to the point you're both at an event, you meet up. It's like online dating. Yeah, but it's the combination that works the best. Because sometimes when you're on virtual, you have FOMO for the live. And then sometimes when you've done the live, you meet everybody and it's easier to do virtual. So it's not going to be a cookie. I think the theme of this is cookie cutter is not going to happen. And Mm-mm. so, but the idea that the event, the live event is a trust accelerator is it was a game changing in my mind, at least, and justifies it. But it does also say it doesn't have to be every year. I mean, I'm missing events this year. I was going to go to MPI and I said, you know, well, I, I don't really want to travel, but I'll go peek in on it here and there and just monitor what's going on. But I'm not going to sit there and go for eight hours. Mm-mm. Are we ready for that complete transformation of what if, what if our 100% of our live events go down to 30 or the interest goes down to 30, whatever that means? Well, you know what? Uh, there's a lot of people that are saying that the digital, that you're going to, if you lower your footprint of your event, you're going to make more money if you get a bigger digital play on top of it. And so that basically the players at the live event are kind of the actors that you're watching in many cases, but, but it, it has to be so engaging. That's why this idea of theatrical performances a soliloquy on cement <laughs> or cement <laughs> sales or something like that, you know, that, that people will relate to it. I mean, look what's happening on TikTok, though. When you think about it, they are making stuff fun. And there's a lot of education. I mean, all of my friends think that it's all these kids just dance into the music. But I'm watching. I'm seeing all these educational things on how to hack your iPhone. And I mean, there's there's ways of we're using the mediums in different ways. And at these little like micro learning moments, those are much easier to absorb than taking a whole course, having, you know, about the forgetting, you know, about the forgetting curve, right? There's the thing called the forgetting curve. And you just, you basically go to an event and you are so excited about what you heard in the session and then you forget it in five minutes. Well, that kind of chat really disrupts everything. I mean, what's the point of a 60 minute presentation Yeah, when you really, truly for the most part, five minutes of that is the essential need to know. I also think that at every session, there should be a professional note taker that basically is part of the on the stage that can actually interrupt people and say, did you really mean this? And they come up with the here's the 15 takeaways and they they send it two or three times in different formats because it's you forget everything after 10 days. But if you get it reinforced right away, you're going to remember it. So there's all these other enhancements of our understanding how we we learn things that also has to uh, be taken into effect as part of the social physics of how to make these events more effective. Because if you're a visual learner like I am, I like going to a live event and actually touching it, feeling it, seeing it, hearing about it. And then I've heard about it again. It was like, oh my God, I'm going to really like that. I mean, once again, it comes down to why are those Instagram ads so enticing? Like, why do I want to buy those things the way they're presenting it? That's hard to translate into an event. It's the style of the way a booth happens. It could be. I mean, I think the challenge is there for sure, but there's something there that we're not doing right. I like this story. I'm not too sure if it's an urban legend or not, but I've heard of a particular portfolio that would take pictures of every single booth on the show floor. So when after the fact, 
the exhibitor would come back and say, oh, it wasn't a great show. They would bring the picture of the booth and say, well, maybe if your booth looked a certain or a different way, yeah, you would be having a different outcome. So I really wish we were having these conversations beforehand, being really consultative with our exhibitors, asking them why they're at the event, what they want to accomplish, what products they want to promote, how they can actually design, again, their their booth to make sure that they're getting the most of the event and creating that experience within the bigger event. Yeah. Now, do you know what I've been doing too? That I started something called Down the Aisle and I go to a trade show and I interview each one of the booths about what's the most important thing you got in it. And I make it into a podcast. And it turns out that like if you're sitting in your car and you didn't get to go to the show and then I'm sort of coming up with the, like the 25 booths that are worth seeing – or you can actually pay to be in it is another way. It makes it so we use this podcast style of entertainment to say, and so I ask, you know, what is, what's a really cool thing that you got going on in your booth? And why is that so different than everyone else? And usually it's nothing to do with what they presented. And we're trying to make trade shows more interesting. I mean, trade shows are really fun if they, if you really sort of care about your community in many cases. And like we had <laughs> one of the things we had at one of our shows is a crazy. It was so crazy. It was a, um, a, a company, a bunch of grandmothers that gave out hugs. <laughs> and so they got a booth and they just hugged everybody <laughs> as they entered. <laughs> you couldn't do that in COVID world. <laughs> and that's so cute, though. It was so cute. It was so cute. The low tech stuff is sometimes more interesting than the high tech stuff. We had roller people that did a whole skateboarding exhibit. You know, people want to watch danger. Oh, yeah. And we have we have had a lot of that. We've had a lot of participatory things that people like to do. And people also like really sort of out crazy booths. Like we have balloon walls that are, are crazy, you know, artistic. Uh, at the entrance, we took over the whole L.A. Mart. We created like a 500-foot wall of balloons that was sculptured. It was before balloons were hot. Like we tried right. to get do it right before – like balloons were way out for a long time, and then they came back. Before ice sculpture was really big, we did a lot of ice sculpture. And I actually took a an ice sculpture and created a morning TV set, and I did the whole set in ice uh, for a local TV station in New York. And that kind of stuff, you know, people people love that. So we try to do these stunts. How do you keep ahead of that, though? The experiential, the new? We see it. We have reporters out every single night and people sending us stuff. So we see stuff. So the whole purpose of BizBash is to peek over the fence to see what other people are doing. Before BizBash, in my opinion, you would never be able to see what anyone else did in the corporate world. So what happens is people see it and they say, oh, I can do that even better. Or I can like, may I, my entrance will be this and my reveal will be like that. And uh, they just uh, like a little tidbit of something stimulates a lot of credit because I believe that it's all kind of an intellectual pursuit, the whole sort of brainstorming thing. I think that event organizers have to be experiential crazy people. I think event organizers should be going to the the openings of all the great shows, the great theater. They should be reading more fiction. I, over the uh, pandemic, started reading older fiction, and you see the events that are happening in the old days, and you get so much, so many ideas from how things used to be done. My dad wrote a book called The War of the Roses, which is a book about divorce, and take I see what he did, you know, because I see my life in some of it, not, but I see how a writer thinks, and yeah. it's all about the imagination. We're all authors of our events. An event right. is not a static thing. It's always what's next at the event. 
we, we register, then we walk the aisles, then we do that. That journey yeah. is a story. We always yeah. say story, story, story. But people don't realize that it really is. Wait, what's around the next corner? What's around the next aisle? Make that aisle interesting. How do you translate that into a digital environment? Because I feel like these are all so great and creative. And I think we are ready for that now. So how do you do that? I think that we're just at the beginning of the digitizing of experiences. Like I think, for example, the when you go to these virtual platforms, the only thing you can do right now, well, people will argue this, is raise your hand and ask a question or like take a poll. Why aren't they digitizing the experiences in the session rooms? There's a guy by the name of Adrian Sager who wrote the book, The Non-Convention. What is it called? The, um, the Unconference. The Unconference. So basically what happens is he creates the conference on the fly. And he has all these techniques for facilitating it. So he has something called a spectrogram where everybody gets up and they actually stand next to the people that they may live near in part of the country. So you get to naturally have a connection between people. He has a thing called the fishbowl, where you actually go pick a question out of the bowl. That needs to be digitized so that we can convert those experiences from a, just a digital flat screen to something that's interactive. The same way gaming is doing it. So I, th I think that the gaming industry is so far above people, young kids that look at what we're doing in our virtual world are saying, holy crap, this is awful, you know? And, and they're going to be the next generation. So we're competing in a world that, uh, that is so backwards to them that if we don't get on the stick and get into gaming technology, you know, it's different. The Gen Zs are, are coming. They're coming to trade shows even now. And yeah, I wrote a story like in April, right when the pandemic started called how do you create the hub and spoke method for mm, events? Mm -hmm. and the idea of instead of having 150,000 people going to Dreamforce, where you distribute it and local into local areas. And so you have the hub where they do the main programming and you have the spokes where there's actually, you're creating more intimacy because you're going to get to know those 100 people more than you'll get to know the 150,000 people. But added to that is the ability to take your trade show and scale it because you can then, by using the new technology of the glasses technology and the and the spatial technology and the augmented reality and all right. that. You can turn the hallway into the trade show booths and you can virtually attend the physical trade show booth by doing that and having a sort of a similar interaction using technology and not spending on space on venues, but scaling intimacy in a way that you can have a million people attending the tra same trade show. You can duplicate that the trade show booth experience in the hallway of the hotel or wherever. And it's a whole other way of thinking about it. So, and as technology gets more spatial technology is kind of the thing where, where the whole room becomes digitized of like what Magic Leap was trying to do. Um, they've had some hiccups on this. Right. But the idea is that, that instead of just looking at the screen, you pick up your glass and your underneath your glass is like the message from the, ex from exhibitor or something like that. It is going to be completely crazy wild when we get to a, having enough bandwidth to do that kind of thing. And that's how you digitize the physical. Yeah, I, I am all in for AR and VR too. And I think it'll open up um, event competition too. There'll be event companies really fallen at the wayside because they're not keeping up with these changes and needs of the younger generation. And you mentioned as well the entrepreneurial spirit of event companies. How do you become that if you aren't already or if you feel like you're restricted in some way you know what's great about our business this is probably one of the least capital intensive 
ways to start a business. You can have a dream, start and sell it before you actually have to pay for it. And if it bombs, you don't even have to go through with it. I've had friends that started you know, the beer festival on the pier, and they're able to sell tickets on a consumer side on those types of things. You have every niche known to man. I tell everybody that's in event organizing, why are you being a consultant to other people? Why don't you just do it yourself? There's so much opportunity. At SISO, for example, it is a feeding frenzy, at least it used to be, for uh, for investment bankers who are looking for deals and for the big companies who are trying to buy up all these things because it's less risk if somebody else starts it and it's successful and you buy it uh, as a big company. or And, and it helps on both sides because it, it, there's an exit now for an entrepreneur. So I view if you're sort of an event organizing third-party company, you're a service provider. You can turn those same skills into, you know, the the bacon show or the uh, or the bread show or the or the food driver show. You know, whatever it is, there is a niche within a niche within a niche, right? Oh yeah, I I agree, and I I like the thought of a bacon show. <laughs> uh, somebody did that. Somebody did the bacon show in Chicago. It was a big success. <laughs> Good for them. Good for them. And when we talk about Emily and acquisitions as well. David, that might change a little bit over the next few years from where I stand. Event companies are buying event companies, but I'd love to see more thought and innovation around event companies thinking about the software platforms and buying the companies who are creating these amazing platforms and owning that. I don't know if it would be intellectual property, but having the the upper hand for X number of months or years to really drive that momentum forward. The people that are leading the event industry now, like Hervé from Emerald and Fernando from Reed, Greg from Clarion, they're really big thinkers. And you're seeing them fighting to make change in their organizations that I think are going to you know, be life-changing. And they're all now, all the investors want innovation. Mm-hmm. And also because of COVID, you can you know, do something and make a mistake because nobody knows anything right now. And you can hit it big. I mean, look at what ReadPop did with that world. They, they've created an entire industry based on that. Those guys are brilliant. I mean, the people, the shows that I'm seeing at SISO, when you tear it down and break it down, they don't realize how creative and exciting they're industry really is in many cases. I mean, it's fun to to do an event and to create a community and to be the mayor of that niche. So tell me about your event coming up in Florida. We're we're involved with a company called Connect. Uh, They're one of the largest in the meeting side of the business. And they acquired BizBash, 80% of BizBash in December of 2019. But the potential of these two organizations together is absolutely phenomenal because we're now Thinking of everyone not as an event producer or an event planner or meeting planner, we're thinking of them as an experience creator. And experience creation crosses all boards. And that's what we all do as producers of these kinds of shows. So we're going to basically be, we're doing education. We're have, we have a keynote speaker, which I can't announce, which is incredible. Last time we had it, we did, we did Barack Obama. Oh, People went nuts to have Barack Obama. We've had Anderson Cooper at some of these. And, you know, politicians are the ultimate event organizers. Their main skill is knowing how to do campaign rallies (laughs) and fundraising and all of that. Barack Obama called himself a community organizer. What the hell? We do that every day. 
it's interesting. It's interesting. We are one of the most exciting businesses in the world. And we, because of the pandemic, people will realize the importance of connection. I was at a gala benefit the other night for the Washington Ballet. People were in black tie and gowns and things like that. The goosebumps were everywhere. The hu- just having a hug was so exciting. And then somebody introduced uh, this guy that was there was a guy named Judge William Webster. And he was the head of the FBI and the head of the CIA. So he they introduced him and he wore his medal of Fre- presidential medal of freedom and they they introduced him and because there was such a uh, like a, a thirst for for integrity everyone gave him such a standing ovation that the goosebumps were like it was like inc- an incredible experience it's the kind of thing you don't budget for and those are the best experiences in the world finding goosebumps especially now is important yeah exactly we, we talked about this before we recorded as well david that you mentioned that content has been king, but now it's going to be something else. It's going to be contact as king. Contact as king is something that we can deliver. Content is everywhere, but content is the mousetrap. Contact is the meat and potatoes of what we do in many cases. Yeah. Because the idea of being in an event and sitting next to you or meeting you can be life-changing. You know, we talk about how do people fall in love? It's just such a amorphous, crazy thing. You never know when you're going to connect. But there is this whole thing in events, the oxytocin exchange. There's been a study that was the oxytocin is like what people traditionally thought of as the chemical between moms and kids. But the studies are now saying that oxytocin exchanges is everywhere because it's how you blink your eyes and frown and how you connect to other people. And so the chemical reaction is really what is very important that people don't realize. And that's very hard to do in a digital environment. It really is. Well, thankfully, we're going back to live events and we'll figure out this hybrid as we go and share experiences. And it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, David. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You've been a delight. Thank you for listening to this episode. And if you thought it was pretty decent, Please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. Stay tuned for more amazing guests who will help you navigate the treacherous but exhilarating virtual in-person hybrid waters in case of an event.